The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cavell. Dugout Nation, welcome to the Dugout CEO Podcast. Today, I am joined by Ralph Burns. Ralph is the founder and CEO of Tier 11, the only agency that looks at all the big levers of the customer acquisition strategy from before the click to after the click. I've had a privilege of working with Ralph, and he is truly one of the best minds in the world around marketing. His podcast, Perpetual Traffic, is at over 11 million downloads. Ralph, welcome to the Dugout CEO. Great to be here, Casey. Thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, our history goes uh, back a while now, and I know you're a baseball guy, you're a CEO, and it kind of just makes sense to have you on the show, so uh, thanks for being here. Right up my alley here, so uh, thanks for inviting me, and uh, awesome to be on and, and talk baseball, business, and whatever else, you know, we'll Casey Camille well, dreams up. <laughs> let's let's do it. Well, let's start with the baseball side of things. I know you're a huge fan. you got kind of like a Red Sox thing going on. But you also got like a Yankees thing going on, which is kind of weird. But talk to us a little bit about your kind of baseball background. Well, my baseball background is kind of a joke in the family because um, my son is, is he actually just got named to the MassCAC, uh, you know, uh, all conference team, which was pretty cool. Like MassCAC is the division that he plays in. So he's like a serious baseball guy. And uh He's a senior and, you know, started really, really young. I think he started when he was like three years of age, if you can believe that. So it's like the, uh, our next door neighbor was the T-ball coach and he was red shirted as a three-year-old. So that's how much he loved playing baseball that early of an age, but he certainly didn't get the skill to play from me. I mean, my father-in-law who just passed was like a legend in Cape Cod baseball uh, great athlete. So I think they'd sort of skipped a generation through like my mother uh, and, you know, and through my, my wife. But the point is, is the, um, when I was actually playing, I was, I was not really that good. And the joke in the family was that, uh, I, I tried out for Babe Ruth when I was, I think it was probably like 12 or maybe 13. And at the Natick high school field, I was so small and so skinny and just, big head, skinny arms, like maybe like, you know, 90 pounds. I couldn't make the throw from third to first. So I did not make Babe Ruth. And the funny thing was, is during the pandemic, um, my oldest was kind of going around. They couldn't play at their field. So they were finding fields like in Western Massachusetts. And they went to the Natick High School field. And he actually videotaped him making the throw from third to first at the exact field, which I did not make the throw and didn't get into Babe Ruth. So it was sort of closure from my standpoint. <laughs> I couldn't make the throw back then, but you know, he whipped it pretty good and uh, threw it over to the first base. First baseman had the iPhone in hand and was sort of videotaping it. So that's kind of the joke. So, uh, but as far as being a, a fan of baseball, huge fan of baseball, uh, obviously a Sox fan and, um, you know, I like I said in, before we hit record is I, I often use baseball analogies in business because there's so much similarity. And I think 
now that my son is just about to graduate and head out to the real world, he's starting to really realize that firsthand and all the lessons that he learned in baseball can be directly related to business as well. So uh, it's a great uh, subject for a podcast, that's for sure. There you go. Well, you're here. So let's talk about that. We'll get into your, I guess, business background a little bit here in a second. But what do you think those similarities are between, I guess, baseball and business? I mean, I think the, the biggest thing is just the idea of like baseball is centered around the idea of failure, especially if you're a hitter. And I think so much in business is not necessarily how smart you are and how business savvy you are. Oftentimes it's just who's the, who is the one that perseveres. And uh, like I said, my father-in-law passed away last week and he, uh, he printed out this picture, maybe we'll, like leave it in the show notes of uh, a pelican eating a frog and the frog like strangling the pelican's throat and on it says don't ever give up and i think that just that encapsulates sports baseball and business and especially in my field i'm in the digital advertising field i oftentimes tell people whether it's you know new hires or people on our own podcast is that you know, if you get, if you create 10 ads and three of them work, you're in the hall of fame in the advertising world. I mean, if you're, you know, what's the average major league baseball average is like 242, 245, somewhere in there. So if you're successful two out of 10 times, you're doing pretty darn good, but you're four. I mean, you're all world. I mean, you're tell Ted Williams, Tony Gwynn. So the point is, is that uh, there's so much failure, I think, just in advertising and in business in general. And I, I constantly sort of think of that. And I think anybody who has played baseball and uh, competitively, especially in a team environment because of the team side of things and all the failure that's in it, it preps you so well for life. Um, and I think uh, it's kind of cool to see my son evolving through that right now and, and what that's going to look like when he does hit the real world. So, yeah, that's great. What, what else with baseball? You know, I, I look at numbers and baseball is a very analytical type of game driven by the numbers. So is business. How do you use numbers in your business to help you guys? Yeah, I mean, numbers and analytics and like obviously baseball has turned very analytical ever since the onset of Moneyball, you know, way back when. Um, and uh the use of analytics, especially in digital marketing and in advertising specifically, is is everything for us. I mean, it's so much a huge part of everything that we do, uh, whether or not it'll be automated at some point with AI. But the point is, is that uh, everything from statistics and how we test different ways in which to attract attention and gain awareness, how we measure the effectiveness of advertising, how we measure the effectiveness of specific campaigns, creatives, ad copy, you name it. Like all of that is based on analytics and crunching numbers and looking at trends and figuring out even the smallest trend, what will give you an indication of ultimate success. Cause like I said, you know, when you, if you launch 10 ads in a, you know, an advertising campaign, the vast majority of them, let's say seven or eight are probably going to fail. But what did you learn from the seven or eight that, or maybe you launch 10 and 10 fail, which is okay. I mean, everyone has like an O for four day, you know what I mean? Um, but the analytics and the numbers will give you an indication, especially from our perspective of, you know, what's your click through rate? How many impressions did you get? What's your engagement? You know, what's your cost per click? All those like, those are little metrics inside the digital advertising world 
it doesn't matter what the the business is there is data embedded in the numbers that can make you a better business person in our particular case it's better advertisers better marketers but there's a huge amount of similarity between all the number crunching that goes on in baseball and that that goes into business and you know in our particular field digital marketing and advertising specifically it's great now with baseball there's five tool players out there mm -hmm. um Gosh, who comes to mind when you think of a five-tool player, whether it's current or past or present? Yeah, I I always think of Mike Trout. He's not quite as fast as he used to be, but yeah, Shohei Otani yeah. is maybe like a six-tool player. <laughs> yeah, crazy, crazy what he's able to do right now. I'm hoping the Cubbies can get him, maybe uh, trade for him uh, down the uh, down the pennant chase, and maybe sign him to a long-term deal because he does have six tools. It's amazing what he's able to do now in business. Do you feel there's businesses like? Looking at your business and what you guys do, like what do you think those things are that you all do at Tier Eleven, like really well? Yeah, I I refer to like a five tool player in our business as a unicorn. And I, I when I first started Tier Eleven, the basic the, the way that I started is I ran ads for people. I did them through like affiliate marketing, which is basically running ads for larger companies, and then you will pay for the advertising and you know whatever you collect through your how cost per lead or whatever it happens to be is sort of arbitrage. So how much you pay, how much you collect for your commission, that's how you make your money. So that's how I sort of started. And I was upwards of spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month of my own money in eating what I killed. And I realized that I was pretty good at doing all this stuff. And so people started asking me, Hey, you know, you're doing that for Netflix or for, you know, this petty auction site or some, you know, crazy supplement. Why don't you do that for me? And that's kind of how I started in on it. And I realized that um, one of the most important factors in, in advertising is a couple of different things. It's, it's copywriting, it's creativity, it's analytics. It's also servicing the customer and having customer faced interactions as well as you know, having just sort of a broad knowledge or understanding of business. So I think that's actually five different things. I never really thought about it as a five tool. But so I was one of those people. I was good at all of those things. I wasn't like Mike Trout, you know, his first couple of years in the majors, but I was pretty good. So I would have been, I would have maybe made like, you know, second team all-star kind of thing if I was in the major leagues. But what I realized is that that type of individual, that five tool player in digital advertising, is really hard to find. And as I scaled and grew, I realized that, okay, I can hire unicorns that are good or maybe great at one of those five tools. But what I ended up realizing is that we had to kind of segment out all of those ind individual things and go more to a specialty model, which is kind of the way baseball has become, you know? I mean, obviously there's, there's innings that need to be pitched and how many batters you face now. But I mean, there used to be like the lefty specialist, righty specialist, the guy with the, you know, the slow curve and the six to 12 curve, all that sort of stuff. And so I, I realized that for us to scale, I had to hire people that were great in all the different functional areas as an advertising agency. And that's when we really scaled. So each one of those individuals were better than me in all those functional areas. And that's where we were able to sort of synergize a lot of different personalities together to blend it into an approach that, that really worked to getting results for our customers. So, um, you know, the five tool player is, is hard. Like I could do it for a year or two, kind of like Trout did, 
And then I was like, oh, my God, like it's too, it's too much. You know, the knees yeah. start breaking down. They won't let you steal anymore, like that kind of thing. And so we ended up going to more of a specialty kind of approach, which, you know, baseball sort of trended that way, as you know. And I've seen your guys' business develop to offering a whole lot of stuff to a few things and doing really well at a few of those things. Do you find a lot of businesses are too wide with the service or the product offering or the problems they're trying to solve? Or, you know, do you think it's better to offer and be all things to all people? I think it's that there's a sort of a hybrid answer to that. And I think it is, um, I would start off, if I had to do this all over again, I would start off specializing in one specific area and get really, really good at that. And that's kind of what we did. Like we started off, we were known as a Facebook ad agency when Facebook ad agencies didn't exist, believe it or not. I mean, this happened in 2012, 2013, thereabouts. I just sort of realized, even though I'm not really a huge social media person, I realized that Facebook had this incredible platform, great targeting, ads started appearing in the news feed, you know, which is, you know, as you scroll, all of a sudden you see ads as opposed to being sort of on the right-hand side. I said, well, this is really where things are going. So I pivoted my business towards that. And as a result of that, we became known as sort of a Facebook ads agency. And that got us to a great deal of success. And, you know, within the first four or five years, what happened after that is that I realized and a lot of customers were starting to demand it. They're like, all right, you do this, but do you do all these other sorts of things? And then we started losing customers because we didn't do those other things. So that's when I went more broad and now we do pretty much any type of media buying. We do all after the click kind of like CRO kind of stuff, you know, uh, website optimization. We do dev, we do, you know, really deep on the creative. We do creative creation. We do, um, you, you know, pretty much email. We do all these things that allow or help our customers to achieve their vision. And we do it not just through one platform. We're still kind of known in that platform as, as a specialist in that area. We're still really, really good at it, but we've become a little bit more broad. So I would suggest for people to, to specialize and figure out a niche of a niche of a niche. Like the riches are in the niches. And when we figured out that Facebook ad, you know, agency niche, it was kind of explosive because we were very distinct from all the other big ad agencies and we were pulling stuff away from those big ad agencies. And then we sort of ended up evolving into more of a full service, you know, multi-channel um, arc of services kind of organization. So I think it sort of depends on where you're at in your business. And I think, you know, every business pivots and adjusts as time goes on. We were just listening to our customers and also realizing, hey, we can do more to help them by doing all these additional things. And that's when we uh, really started to kind of take off into our next level of growth. Amazing. It's so simple. It's like, hey, let's listen to our customers and our customers will tell us how we can help them. How do you go about actively doing that? It, I mean, it was pretty simple. Um, I think also having uh, an account lead on each individual account, it ended up being sort of media buyers who were buying media and they just kept their ears open for other opportunities. And uh, I remember when we first started doing 
uh, after the click or, you know, CRO, uh, conversion rate optimization, is we had hired somebody who was really good at landing page design, messaging, and he was in on a you know, customer meeting. He's like, you know, these guys really need that. Like we keep sending traffic to this one page and to this one offer, but what if we actually added this offer to it? Or what if we added like a secondary upsell? What if we optimized that page? What if we split tested the price? You know, all those things. And so we pitched it to them and they're like, this is great. This is actually what we need. What we were looking at is how can we scale up their spend in order to get them to their goals. And they were a, a million dollar plus company and they wanted to get to eight, fig eight figures and then ultimately nine figures. And like, well, the next thing for you to do, as long as I know what your goal is, I can help you get there. And th that was a critical sort of component to it. So we tested that out, realized that it was something that people wanted, needed, and we were really good at it. And then we started offering it as a service, sort of as an adjunct, sometimes paid, sometimes not paid, uh, to to ultimately, you know, help us uh, help our customers reach their goals. And you know, our whole thing is, you know, we help purpose-driven businesses achieve their vision, and we just so happen to do it with like what we do, which we call customer acquisition amplification, which is a whole array of different products that we pull together in a unique way in order to deliver the result that they want. So it sounds like you're really clear of who your perfect and ideal customer is. And it feels, and I don't know if it seems like this um, based on your experience, but a lot of businesses, they're serving a lot of different types of people, but they're like, all right, they got 10 out of 10 results over here. They got six out of 10 over here. Hey, this customer, they like to work with this one. They love it. This customer, they don't really like it. How did you all work with figuring out who your perfect customer was and how do you deliver the best results for them? Because I think everybody on here is trying to figure that out to some extent. Yeah, it was it was a really um, it was a concerted effort. It was I remember in a, one of our ninety day meetings, and you know we're huge on traction, and obviously you you are uh, the whole EOS system, and we would do our ninety day meetings. And remember my. I remember doing this a couple of different times in a variety of different ways, but I said, okay, let's do a brainstorming session. Um, who do we love to serve the most? And so we started to pick out individual accounts that we served and we're like, we just love working with these types of people. Uh, and then I, next column was who do we not like working with? <laughs> then we sort of named all of them. And then we kind of looked at, all right, those are, that's good because that's in alignment with our manifesto, the ones that we don't like to work with to a certain degree. And we ended up probably parting ways with some of those organizations. This is, you know, three, four years ago now, but it was really, it was an interesting conversation because we went through our leadership team like, well, why is it that we like working with them? What is it about them? And so we figured out it is it is companies that have some kind of level of purpose. They have either some level of vision. They want to do something greater than themselves. And we had just had a couple of experiences with some really bad choices for customers like drop shippers and, you know, people that were selling products that we didn't really understand. And then we started to see the reviews and they really didn't work as well as we had thought they did. And nobody felt good about that. What we, what we 
as a team, we felt good about working with these more purpose-driven organizations, but more specifically, they had a director of marketing. They had a VP of marketing. They had maybe a CMO, maybe a little bit larger or just on the cusp of sort of getting from that small to mid-sized business to, you know, maybe mid to large size business. And it didn't really even matter what the product mix is. It was more along the lines of, can we, do we believe in what this is? And what's the structure of the organization? And then we realized, okay, that is the type of person that we want to go out and go after. And then we sort of sub-niched down into like specific, you know, industries that we felt that we were really good at. And ever since then, we've kept that same, you know, ICP, ideal customer profile, and it still exists to this day. Uh, you know, sometimes it's an owner operator that's acting as the CMO, but it's not a small, small business. It's not a enterprise fortune 500 business. It's kind of right in the middle. And that's the area where, you know, we found there's less bureaucracy. We can get stuff done. The decision maker is on board with it. They trust us. We trust them. Uh, and that was really sort of just a, a process of figuring out what you do best and then pivoting yet again. Uh, and then adding services to assist those individuals, which we talked about, you know, just previously. So it's an evolution for sure. And that's what I like about watching your guys' business grow is you take a lot of time, more time than I've seen most companies working on the business, getting out of the office, getting in a room with your leadership team, strategically thinking through, is this something that we should continue doing? Is this the best way that we should continually do it? Who is our perfect customer? How do we serve them better? How do we add more value? How are you able to do that? It feels like a lot of people just in life, they're putting out fires, they're answering emails, they're returning Slack messages. Everybody's so busy and running the day-to-day. -day. You're really good at thinking strategically and getting your team to do that. Why are you so good at that when I see so many companies that they don't even feel like they have time to start thinking strategically about their business? Well, first off, I, I think it's actually fun. It's Every 90 days when we do it, when we get together, I really enjoy that time. I, I, I mean, I try to, I mean, my, my wife, I think has been a great influence there. She's like, you need time away to be able to think. It's like, you can't be in it, in it, in it all day long. You'll never get the great idea or the thing that's like, oh, I should be doing that. Um, so I, it's hard to explain that to entrepreneurs who are in it and they're grinding and they're working these 70, 80, 90 hour weeks. I get it. I was there a hundred percent, but I also realized that the planning side is, is super important. And I think it was probably, I think it was either a combination of uh, some of the Vern Hardish stuff and then Gina Wickman just reading that and saying, why are we, why aren't I doing this? And I remember I had sort of a business partner who I was pushing on the EOS side, like we should have a 90 day meeting every 90 days and set rocks and, you know, set priorities and all these other sorts. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's great. And then he'd forget about it. And I was like, finally, we sort of parted ways. And I was like, the first thing I want to do is do that. Cause I realized like, first off, it's, it's actually fun because you do get to sit and figure out. But secondly, when you do it with a team of individuals and the way I first started doing it is literally it was me and my two leadership team members at that point, it took the pressure off me a bit to figure out and get all the great ideas for the business. When in fact they had just as many great ideas and they were just as helpful 
in bringing them to fruition, especially through the, the traction process. So I think a lot of business owners, they think, all right, well, I'm, a, I'm kind of the genius with a thousand helpers or a hundred helpers or whatever it is, 10 helpers. I don't think that's the right way of looking at things. I think you really do have to collaborate with your team, not necessarily let the, you know, the inmates run the asylum. You're still in charge. I mean, you're still the warden, so to speak. I mean, the point is, is like you can, you can get the, some of the best ideas through just brainstorming and time away from the business, especially if you're working alongside people that you know, like, and trust. So you're combining like fun and great ideas. Um, I don't know. It's the, it's the best time for the business uh, uh, on a quarterly basis, at least for me. Uh, and it's, I always sort of come out of those, those meetings really re-energized and just excited. And I think as a business owner, you, you, you gotta have those breaks. And it's so hard to get out of that mindset oftentimes because it's the thing you know you should do, but you don't have time to do it. But when you do do it, you're like, why do I wait so long to do this? Yeah. Yeah. It feels like most people, they want to do it and then things kind of come up and then they can't get it scheduled. What I found is you guys, you put it on the calendar 90 days out and then everything else leads up to that. So I think that's, that's really good. 100%. Well, this has been great. Let's, let's, Maybe go to our next segment, Shin Music. Um, any Red Sox players that, I guess, were pitchers that used to, you know, buzz the tower a little bit that you want to invoke here before you give a piece of wisdom or advice to Dugout Nation? Uh, it's, well, it's got to be Pedro. I mean, he always went headhunting, you know? <laughs> the best. got to be. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the best, you know, fastball change-up combos and then that loopy curve. He threw like 99 to 2000. He was unhittable. But yeah, yeah, Pedro. He was, guy. I remember remember the All Star game, and he struck out. I think oh. it was McGuire and Sosa. And who was the other one? Uh, McGuire, Sosa. It was like back to back to back. Was it Bagwell? Maybe no. Might have been. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to figure it out. Put in the show notes. Yeah, might have been. Might have been. Um, but yeah, Pedro did chin music better than anybody else. Is there any chin music that you would want to give everybody listening to this? You know, they're a baseball guy, right? They're a business guy. They're a leader. Any good piece of advice you want to leave them with? I would say uh, the hardest part, I was actually just talking to my cousin about this because she has an architectural firm and she has two people that work for her. And uh, I actually wrote a book on this whole subject of like how to be a virtual boss. And you can find it on, on Amazon, not to plug it, but I mean, it's on Amazon. It's called virtual boss. But anyway, the, one of the chapters that's in there is, um, the Mr. Fix it hat. And I find that so many business, so sort of small business owners who are trying to scale to the next level or ones that have already scaled and are trying to get to the next level they fall victim to this um, sort of trap. And the trap is that they end up doing the work for the people that report to them. And it's a, it's a doom loop of despair. And I think one of the reasons why probably a lot of your listeners here or viewers are, are working 70, 80, 90 hours a week is because they're not allowing this to happen. And the idea behind it is this, is that when you're coaching and teaching somebody on a new skill, and I gave this example of how we used to do quality control for all our campaigns. 
And this is when I was sort of new. And I probably had seven or eight people, seven or eight media buyers. And we just couldn't kind of get out of our way. And they would submit a campaign and say, hey, this is ready for QC review. And so I would go in and I would fix all their mistakes. And so there's seven or eight of them. And then I'd say, all right, campaign's live. And then after two or three times of fixing the same damn mistakes, I all of a sudden realized, like, what am I doing? Uh, I'm not doing anybody's service here. I'm not helping them. I'm making my life more challenging. They're not learning anything. I'm not kind of putting them on the hot seat a little bit to make sure that I'm watching, but I'm not going to do their work for them. I don't want them to be dependent on me. I want them to be independent of me. And at that point, I can then scale and grow. And so I stopped doing that. And I said, all right, I do the next QC. And Angela, who's actually still working for you, you, you know her, um, she remembers the day that I said, I don't need to QC you anymore because I got it to the point where she would, she would submit it and I would say in my notes inside Slack or Podio, I forget what we were using at that point in time, I'd say, you know, campaign one has a typo on one of the ads. Uh, ad set four has some nomenclature changes you got to clean up. And then, uh, you know, ad 14 or whatever, uh, check the creative. It doesn't seem to be right. So instead of fixing it, I would send it back. And so what ended up happening is by the second or third time I would do this, all of a sudden, all the same mistakes that they were making magically disappeared. And I got to the point with Angela and she says she remembers this day when I finally said, I don't need to QC your ads anymore because everything that you're sending me is perfect. And it was only because I did that. So that's the idea of putting the Mr. Fix-It hat on and that you feel good by correcting your people's mistakes. But in fact, you don't help them. They don't feel good about it. But if you send it back to them and then they actually fix it on their own, they feel good. So you're doing two things. They feel good. They're more productive. You're not tied to them. They become, you know, not dependent on you, but independent of you or maybe interdependent to a certain degree. And all of a sudden, that's when you can really scale. And I think that teaching and coaching approach is something that entrepreneurs get really stuck in. And I, I talked to my cousin about this this, this past week because I think this is the type of person that's listening to this show. It's like, she's like, oh my God, I do that all the time. And I said, well, try it this week. And I gave her a copy of my book, by the way. And then I said, but make sure that you do this because it's going to be hard at first. You know, if you're in the middle of like a huge deadline and you've got like a day to turn it around, that's probably not the time to do it. But if you have a little bit of time, do it. And all of a sudden you're going to realize my people are far more motivated. I now have more time and now I've empowered them to be better than what they were before. What a great leadership strategy. So virtual boss, we'll put that in the show notes. That's sure. a fantastic Ralph. So thanks so much for that. With tier 11, remind us one more time who you guys are serving, what you guys are doing, and kind of what do you got uh, kind of in the works? Yeah, yeah, it's at tier11.com. Uh, you can certainly check that out. I also have a podcast called Perpetual Traffic, which is, uh, I think it's approaching 12 million downloads now. It's, it's one of the top podcasts in the world in marketing, so definitely check that out. I've got a, 
uh, an awesome co-host I've been doing that with for quite some time. And yeah, I mean, we're on all the socials. You know, we, we post multiple times every single day, you name it from TikTok all the way to YouTube shorts. We're doing all that. So, and there's a lot of, a lot of good information out there just on marketing. We try and be helpful and useful. And, and, um, quite honestly, that's, you know, when people listen to our stuff or watch our videos, they say, you know, I've learned a lot here, but at a certain point, maybe they're like, eh, maybe I'll have tier 11 do that instead of me doing it. And, uh, that's the whole purpose of it is to make it sort of a natural progression, but yeah, we're all over that stuff and definitely check out the podcast. Great. We'll do that. We'll put the podcast link in the show notes as well, Ralph. And thanks so much for being a guest on the dugout CEO. You bet. Thanks for having me. Dugout Nation, what a grand slam of an episode today with Ralph Burns. Here are the big three takeaways that I learned from Ralph. Number one, work on your business, not in your business. Think strategically and get out of the day-to-day. Run great quarterly meetings with your team. Block it on the calendar. Make it a priority. Involve all your leaders. And you're going to talk about in those meetings what's working in your business. Celebrate it. What's not working in it, talk about it and figure out the real issues that you're having and how you're going to fix it. And what are the priorities that you need to cover over the next few months and the things that you need to do to make that long-term vision become a reality. And don't forget, have fun and enjoy the journey. Number two, you're not Mr. Fix-It. You don't have to fix your people's mistakes. They need to. Teach and coach them rather than do it or redo it for them. You might think you're doing a good job and helping your team, but you're actually holding them back from being able to operate or execute without you. If you want to remove yourself from the day-to-day operations of your business, you have to have leaders that you can trust to get it done without you. And you have to be able to show them how to solve their problems on their own without you. And number three, part of business is trial and error, especially in rolling out new projects or trying new advertising ideas. Try stuff, measure it. If it works, double down on it. Make sure you know your numbers and all the analytics that matter in your business and use those numbers to track what's working and what's not working in all aspects of your business. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP at what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to caseycavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.